Today we'll be reading Isaiah chapter 5, so if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open them to Isaiah chapter 5 for our scripture reading today. Uh, You can follow along with the sermon outline as well, uh, either on the handout or uh, you can access it through our website as well on our online bulletin. So Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vine, a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hold, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely my houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant, for ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening, as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord, or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile, for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze in their pasture. The nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, Let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come, that we may know it. 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men at mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them, and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily, they come. None is weary, none stumble. None slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. When my wife, uh, Wendy, was a child, and she first saw the movie Bambi, she cried. If you have not seen Bambi, you might have a hard time understanding why someone would cry over a movie about a deer. This movie came out in 1942, so if you had not yet had time to see it, I'm not going to feel bad today about spoiling the movie for you, okay? But in the movie, what happens is that Bambi's mother gets shot by a hunter, and Bambi's mother dies. Sad, right? Well, that was then, and this is now. Wendy has been busy planting many different kinds of flowers and plants in our yard, which she enjoys doing. She has lovingly watered them and protected them all throughout the year. But then, last winter, all kinds of deer ate my wife's plants as well as the hedges. The shrubs were pretty much stripped bare from four feet down all the way to the ground. As far as my wife is concerned at this moment, all deer are bad deer. And so it would not surprise me then if my wife hosts a hunter's breakfast in November. (laughs) She doesn't want Bambi's mom to die, but she wants Bambi's mom to move out. She would like to see Bambi evicted from our neighborhood. Isaiah chapter 5 that we just read is not a sad movie like Bambi. 
Instead, it's a sad love song. It's a song of heartbreak. So this is a classic country music song. No one does sad songs like country music songs. So in the song, Isaiah sings about his beloved in verse 1. But then by verse 3, he switches things up and he, he starts to sing as his beloved. And then in verse 6, we discover that Isaiah's beloved is God himself because it's only God who can control the rain. And so he, he is singing as God. And then finally, in verse 7, we discover who it is who has broken God's heart. It is his beautiful vineyard that he had lovingly cared for and provided for and watched over, just like my wife had cared for her flowers and plants. The vineyard, then, is God's chosen people, Israel and Judah, who have broken God's heart. God had poured out blessing after blessing on his people, but they had rejected his love. They had broken God's heart. God had hoped that his people would produce good fruit as a result of his loving care, the fruit of obedience and righteousness. But they had only produced bad fruit, wild grapes. Isaiah 5 teaches us that God saves us to produce good fruit. We live a life of faith when we produce good fruit. We will see then today what happens when we don't produce good fruit with our lives. First of all, God's heart breaks when we don't produce good fruit. By an act of sheer grace, God had given to Israel and to Judah the promised land, a beautiful land. Verse 1 says that the promised land was a very fertile hill. God had cared for his people, not just by removing them from slavery in Egypt, but God had left nothing undone for his people because of his love for Judah. God had thought of all of the details in taking care of his people. All the stones had been removed from the vineyard, according to verse 2. Choice vines were then planted, the best vines possible. This vineyard was going to be a sign of Judah's prosperity and abundance. God expected good fruit to grow in his vineyard. He expected good fruit to come from his people. He was so confident of good fruit being produced that he built a watchtower and a wine vat, according to verse 2. But what happened? What kind of fruit did Judah produce? At the end of verse 2 and verse 4, we see that God expected good grapes to be produced, good fruit. But the vines only yielded wild grapes. Literally, these wild grapes mean stink fruit. Judah produced a stinky crop. The vine of Judah was not good for fruit. It was good for nothing. These grapes had the smell of decay and death to them. They did not smell like sweet and delicious fruit. So whose fault was it that Judah did not produce good fruit? Was it God's fault as the owner of the vineyard? 
Or was it Judah's fault as the vine? We get the answer in verse 4, when a broken-hearted God asks the question, What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? God sings in his love song, What more could I have done for my beloved? I gave her every good gift of grace for her to produce good fruit. I loved her so much. But all she gave me in return was stink fruit. We will see in verses 8 through 30 what kind of stink fruit Judah produced. But for now, I want to make it clear that it wasn't God. It wasn't God's fault that the fruit was so bad. It was all Judah's fault. Judah had wasted every opportunity. They had despised every privilege given to her by God. And so what was God going to do to his people, his vineyard? He was going to destroy it. It was good for nothing, since it only produced stink fruit. Verse 5 says that God would remove the vineyard's hedge of protection. He would break down its wall and let it be trampled. It would be the Assyrian army who eventually would come into the nation of Judah and bring destruction. If Judah had lived a life of faith and obedience, she would have been impregnable. Nothing could have harmed her. But because she produced bad fruit with her life, God would let Assyria devour her. God would even withhold the rain from the promised land, according to verse 6, because of its failure to produce good fruit. And just like God let thorns grow in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve's sin, God would let briars and thorns grow in Judah because of Judah's many sins, according to verse 6. God expected justice from Judah, but got bloodshed instead, according to verse 7. Justice is the righting of wrongs, while bloodshed is the inflicting of wrongs. God expected righteousness from Judah, but God got a cry of distress instead in verse 7. Righteousness is right living and right relationships. But within Judah, there was nothing but crying out, And crying out indicates wrong relationships within the nation and the anguish of a people who are being oppressed. So here's the part of the sermon where I ask you a personal question. Are you ready? What kind of fruit is your life producing? Are you producing good fruit? Or are you producing stink fruit. I see many of you here at our church who are producing good fruit with your lives, and it blesses me as I see that good fruit. But if you are producing stink fruit with your life, let me tell you, it is not God's fault that your life stinks. Whose fault is it? Yours. After all, what more could God have done for you? 
What more could he have given you as a gift of his love? He gave his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sins so that you might be forgiven. And God gave to you the faith to trust that Christ and Christ alone can save you rather than your own good works. And once you trusted that Christ is your Savior, God gave to you the gift of the Holy Spirit to give you the power to produce good fruit with your life. What kind of good fruit? We find the answer in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Let's read together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So are these good fruits which we just read, are they the fruit of your life? These characteristics that we just read, they, they look like Jesus Christ. So, of course, we cannot look like Jesus by our own strength, by our own power. That's why God graciously gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that you would have the power to produce good fruit and look like Jesus. If you abide in the vine of Jesus, if you stay connected to Jesus through Bible reading, through prayer, through worship with other believers, the Holy Spirit will give to you the power to look like Jesus yourself. He will give you the power to produce good fruit with your life. Would you like to produce such good fruit? Abide in the vine. Stay connected to Jesus every day. Pray for the Holy Spirit of Jesus to fill you. Then your life will not break God's heart. Instead, you will bring joy to God as you produce good fruit with your life. Well, what also happens is that God's hand is raised in judgment when you don't produce good fruit. We see that in verse 25, particularly, where it talks about God's hand being stretched out against his people. Now, people get very uncomfortable when you start to talk about God's judgment. For example, whenever we Christians talk about hell, someone will always ask, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? The answer to that question comes at the end of verse 16, where we read the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. You see, God is not just loving. He is also what? He is righteous. He is holy. Now, the word holy means separated. What makes God separated from us is his moral purity. This is his separatedness from us. If we are going to ask, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? We also need to ask a question that I have almost never heard anyone ask. And that question is this, how can a holy God send anyone to heaven? Our holy God will expose sin just like he did in Isaiah's day, through Isaiah, he exposed 
all of Judah's sins. And so when God exposes sin, he must act against it as the holy God. God hates sin because he is holy. He is always opposed to sin with all of his being. God will then act to protect his honor and his glory and his holiness in his people. Since Judah had produced stink fruit with their lives, God announced a series of six woes on Judah in chapter 5. The first woe is found in verse 8. Woe to you who join house to house. The word woe means the great sorrow or distress is coming for Judah because of the stink fruit of their lives. God's hand is raised against Judah in judgment when these woes are pronounced. See, rich people had defrauded the poor within Judah, and they had enriched themselves by adding house to house on the land. The poor had been evicted from their houses. The promised land was a gift of God to each Israelite. Each Israelite was to receive both land and a house so that they could provide food for themselves. But what had happened? The rich stole the land and the houses from the poor Israelites. So what was God's judgment? Many houses, God says, will be desolate, according to verse 9. God says to the rich, if you take a house from a poor Israelite brother, God will send foreigners to take all of your big houses from you rich people. Woe to you who steal from your brothers. Judah was not only abusing material wealth, they were also abusing the material, the good material of creation. According to verse 11, they were drunkards who were headed for woe. These folks, they rose up early in the morning just so they could get drunk. The only thing that got them out of bed in the morning was their wine. They were self-indulgent. So how would God judge these self-indulgent people? They would lose their land, they would go into exile out of their land, and they would suffer hunger and thirst, according to verse 13. They would have no more wine to drink. They would go to Sheol, the land of the dead, according to verse 14. They would be humbled, according to verse 15. And their big houses would turn into what? Ruins, according to verse 17. So I brought up a picture with me today. Isaiah says to Judah, you're proud of your big houses that you have stolen from the poor. Well, this is what your big house is going to look like someday. It will turn into a pile of ruins. The people of Judah lived to satisfy their appetites. But in the end, only one appetite would be satisfied. The appetite of the grave, Sheol, for more dead bodies. These were the first two woes. But God is not done yet. He instead has four more woes to bring. 
Now, at this point, I'm sure that most of you have a different kind of woe that you would like to say. You'd like to say woe like you would say to a horse. You'd like to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down, God. Slow your roll with all this judgment talk. Can't we just say something happy here instead? You say, God, can't we just avoid all of this judgment? Do we really need more talk of judgment that is coming? If you are thinking that way, I'd like for you to think about what happened on August 6, 1945. On that day, thousands of people woke in Hiroshima, Japan, to go about their daily lives. They did not realize that an atomic bomb was going to be dropped on their city at 8.15 that morning. The people of Hiroshima were oblivious to the danger that was headed their way. They were about to be destroyed, or at least horribly disfigured. But they were unaware of their perilous situation. Their position was desperate, and so was their condition. But they didn't know. Because of that bomb, 70 to 80,000 people, about a third of the population of Hiroshima, they were killed. They were killed by the blast and the resulting firestorm. Another 70,000 people were injured by the bomb. Thousands, of course, died later from the radiation. So here's my question for you. Do you think the people of Hiroshima would have liked a warning about the destruction that was coming their way? I think they would have. And I think if they had received such a warning in time, they would have fled for their lives. They would have run knowing that they were in danger. So when God gives us warnings, they are merciful warnings. God warns us because of his mercy that judgment is coming, surely coming. He warned Judah with a series of woes. And these warnings are meant to lead us to produce good fruit in keeping with repentance from sin. Well, since God's woes are merciful, let's continue to examine the last four woes of Isaiah 5. In verse 19, God pronounces a woe on those who deny God and doubt his power. They say about God, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. They say, if God really exists, let's see him do a miracle. These people were were slaves to their own sinful appetites. They held on to what was false. Verse 18 says that they were all tied up with cords and ropes. They were slaves to sin. Another woe is pronounced in verse 20 on those who call evil good and good evil. They turn moral values upside down. They deny absolute objective moral values. They do what seems good in their own eyes. Another woe in verse 21 is spoken to those who are wise in their own eyes. Such people put themselves in the place of God. I am smarter than God, they say. 
I know what's better. Finally, in verses 22 and 23, a woe is given to those who are heroes at holding their wine. They corrupt the justice system by taking bribes and convicting the innocent. This is the society in which Isaiah found himself a prophet of God. But can I ask you something? Do these stink fruits of Judah, do they sound familiar to you today? Can you smell these stink fruits in our own culture? What then was God's warning for Judah? And what is his warning for us today? If you are producing stink fruit, what's coming? Judgment. And so God's first warning here is that judgment would come suddenly upon Judah. The people of Judah accuse God of being slow to act and to do miracles for his chosen people. They accused him of that in verse 19. Well, guess what? God's judgment would happen as quickly as a wildfire consuming dry stubble and dry grass, according to verse 24. God the judge is in control, both of creation and of nations. He has the power to set your country on fire, God is saying. But he also has the power, according to verse 25, to make the mountains quake, to send earthquakes. This might be a reference to the earthquake that God did actually send upon Judah when King Uzziah was the king. King Uzziah was the first king that Isaiah prophesied to. God also is in control of the nations. God can whistle for nations to come. And judge his people like one might whistle for their dog to attack an enemy. You see that in verse 26. And when God whistled, Assyria would come quickly. They would come to judge both Judah and Israel. And so what would Judah be like when Assyria came in judgment? They would be like prey cowering before a hungry lion, according to verse 29. That's what Judah would be like, knowing that they were about to be eaten. They would be like storm-tossed sailors, hoping to make it to land, according to verse 30. But they would only find darkness and distress. The last verse of Isaiah chapter 5 has two references to darkness. The verse says that when you look to the land, you find darkness and distress. And the verse also says that light itself is darkened. It must have seemed to Isaiah and to Judah that darkness was going to win. And yet we wonder, how can this be? Doesn't God love his chosen people? Didn't he sing for them a love song at the beginning of Isaiah 5? So how is it possible that the darkness could win? At the end of chapter 5, however, it does look like God is about to turn out the lights on Judah. The party is over for these self-indulgent people. They are going to be judged for producing nothing but stink fruit with their lives. 
So who's going to win? Will it be light or will it be darkness? How can God's love and holiness be reconciled to one another? How is it possible for a holy God to live with sinful people like us and like the people of Judah? Here's what I want you to remember from Isaiah 5 today. God is not a force like in the movie Star Wars. That's not who God is. God is not this powerful force of anger that blows people away with his justice. No, God is a person. God is, in fact, a lover, as we see from Isaiah chapter 5. And what do lovers do for each other all the time? They forgive each other. We sin against our beloved, and our beloved forgives us. Our beloved sins against us, and we forgive our beloved. This is what lovers do. And this, in fact, is what God does. God, of course, never sins. He's holy. But God does forgive. An impersonal force cannot forgive you. But a betrayed lover can forgive you. And this is what God offers to Judah and he offers to you today. God offers you forgiveness. God offers us this forgiveness at the cross. Do you remember what happened at the cross? Darkness. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 5, darkness is coming for Judah. And on the day that Jesus died for our sins, darkness fell We read of this darkness in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45. Let's read together. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And so on Good Friday in Jerusalem, from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over the whole land. At the time of day when it should have been the brightest, what was there instead? Nothing but darkness. Our sin, our stink fruit, led to God's judgment and darkness. But who did that judgment fall upon? If we trust that Christ died in our place, the judgment fell on Jesus. Isn't that good news? Isn't that news we're celebrating? That Christ took the judgment that we deserved? That judgment that fell on Jesus brought us forgiveness. When Jesus died, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place in the temple where God himself was said to dwell, that curtain was torn, ripped, top to bottom. Because Jesus died, we now have access into the presence of the holy God. Our sin is paid for. Our debt is erased. We can now live in the presence of the holy God. The cross has reconciled God's love and God's holiness. 
Darkness does not have the final word. God's mercy will not be exhausted or defeated because Jesus went into the darkness for us. We can now walk in the light and enjoy the sunshine of God's love and his presence. Church, why has God saved your soul? To live a life of faith and to produce good fruit. To live godly lives. To look like Jesus in this world. So what happens if you are one of God's people and you produce stink fruit instead? What happens if your life smells like death and decay? You break God's heart. God prepares to discipline you for your sin. The good news is that you don't have to keep living in darkness. You can turn around. You can repent. You can be forgiven. You can live in the light. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can produce good fruit. Ask God then today to fill you with his Holy Spirit so that you might produce the sweet and the delicious fruit that God wants. Let's pray together. God, we thank you this morning that you are a holy and a merciful God. Thank you that you hate sin. You don't want to see sin destroy us. And so you warn us when we get close to sin. You remind us that we are in danger and you show us mercy day after day. And so I I pray for those who are living lives of sin today. I pray that you would cause them to turn around. May they produce good fruit with their lives instead. May you turn their hearts toward you. And I pray that good fruit would be produced by everyone in this church. In your name we pray. Amen.